Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Byzantine Stories Episode 9 Women in the Byzantine World Part 1 Immense and Immeasurable This is the story of St. Mary, or St. Marinos. There was a man named Eugenios, who lived in purity, piety, and in the fear of God. He was married and had a daughter named Mary. His wife died while Mary was young, so he raised her alone, teaching her the ways of a pious life. Once she'd grown up, he decided to enter a monastery. Mary cried and begged him not to leave her behind. Eugenios responded, Child, what am I to do with you? You are female, and I desire to enter a monastery. How then can you remain with me, for it's through the members of your sex that the devil wages war on the servants of God? Mary was persuasive, though. She convinced her father to take her with him. So they cut all her hair off, dressed her like a man, and renamed her Marinos. After giving away all their possessions, they each took their vows and entered a monastery. Marinos remained undetected, as her new brothers assumed that she was a eunuch. With her high voice and beardless face, what other conclusion could they draw? Marinos excelled at the monastic life. She was selfless, modest, and hard-working. After her father died, she gained more attention, being gifted by God with the ability to drive demons from the sick. The other forty monks she lived with were impressed and looked upon her as one of their brightest and best. Every month, four of the monks would leave the monastery and travel out to the wilderness. Their task was to take food and supplies to their brothers who'd chosen to live a solitary life. The journey was long, so the monks would stop at the same inn on the way out and the way back. 
Marinos avoided this duty for some time for fear that it might expose her gender, but eventually she was forced to go. While staying at the inn, a soldier who was also spending the night slept with the innkeeper's daughter. When she became pregnant, the soldier told her to blame Marinos, the young and good-looking monk who'd been present around that time. When he found out, the innkeeper raced to the monastery, loudly abusing the monks he met at the gate. The superior came out to hear the charges and put them to Marinos. Rather than bring any more shame to her home, Marinos accepted the charge and begged for forgiveness. The superior had no choice but to expel Marinos from the monastery. She slumped outside the gates and remained there day after day, relying on the charity which the monks handed out to the poor. When the innkeeper's grandson was born, the man handed the baby over to Marinos, saying, Here is the child which you have wickedly engendered. Take it. And so Marinos raised the child alone, outside the monastery gate, for three years. At this point, the other brothers begged their superior to change his mind. They liked Marinos and found his plight pitiful. And so the superior relented, allowing Marinos and the baby back inside, but only as the lowest of all the brothers. At this, Marinos wept and gladly spent her days doing the most menial chores while also raising the boy that was not hers. The boy grew into a man and served the monastery well. And as more time passed, there came a day when Marinos was absent from all her usual duties. At the end of the day, the superior sent men to look for Marinos, and they found their brother dead in her room. All were sad. But as they prepared the body for burial, a great cry went up. Lord, have mercy! They discovered that Marinos was, in fact, a woman. The superior came to see for himself, and when he set eyes on her body, he collapsed to the floor in tears and cried out, Forgive me! I have sinned against you. I shall lie dead here at your feet until such a time as I hear forgiveness for all the wrongs that I have done you. And while he was uttering many such lamentations, a voice spoke to him, saying, Had you acted knowingly, this sin would not be forgiven. But since you acted unknowingly, your sin is forgiven. The superior got up and summoned the innkeeper, who was equally incredulous. His daughter had since been possessed by an evil spirit. She was called for and confessed her lies at Marinos's, well, Mary's grave. As she did so, the demon left her. Let us then, beloved, zealously emulate the Blessed Mary and her patient endurance, so that on the day of judgment we may find mercy from our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion to the ages of ages. Amen. Hello everyone. As you may know, I've already produced three episodes about women in the Roman world, which are available for you on the ad-free bonus feed at patreon.com forward slash history of Byzantium. 
I now present three more episodes about women in the Byzantine world. And these episodes are very much a continuation of that series. You don't have to go back and binge them to enjoy these, but you may get more out of them if you do. Let me just recap those episodes for you briefly. In part one, we talked about the structural obstacles which women faced in the Greco-Roman world. They were barred from serving in the army, government, or major priesthoods, which meant they had little opportunity to change their status. Unless they were born to a wealthy family or married into one, they were unlikely to exercise much agency. In part two, we looked at the daily lives of women, Despite the restrictions they faced, many women found a way to make a mark. They worked in various industries, they ran businesses, they inherited fortunes and kept them. And then in part three, we looked at individual women who broke through the silence of male historians and became powerful figures in their own right. Clodia and Fulvia came to prominence as the Republic broke down. Their position as leading lights in powerful families allowed them to boss men around for a change. While Hypatia rejected family life, remaining unattached and able to focus on her career. I noted at the time that it was Hypatia, a pagan philosopher, who created the blueprint for the holy women of Byzantium. So here we are, in Christian Byzantium. And it is Christianity that marks the shift from the Roman to the Byzantine worlds, as far as this series is concerned. So the question is, what did Christianity do for the lives of women? At first glance, there were a number of positive developments. Jesus was a radical figure. He baptized women and men side by side, and he preached tolerance and forgiveness. In the eyes of ancient men, The worst crime a woman could commit was adultery. But when the Pharisees dragged a woman in front of Jesus who'd been caught in the act, he simply responded, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Early Christian sects saw women playing a prominent role and taught that old distinctions between Jew and Gentile and perhaps even man and woman might be swept away. But the truly Radical strains of Christian thinking eventually hit the windshield of Greco-Roman culture. As Christianity went mainstream, it had to adapt to the norms of the Mediterranean. Still, it seemed like this new religion would take some of the hard edges off Roman civilization. Christian moralists preached forgiveness and charity and spoke out against the brutal parts of public life. The gladiatorial games disappeared and the death penalty became rarer. Christian marriage, in theory, elevated the status of women. Jesus taught that marriage should be monogamous and for life. This was quite a change for both the Jews and the Romans. Jewish men dominated their marriages and could have multiple wives. And though Roman marriages were monogamous, they could be easily broken, particularly amongst the upper classes. The Christian insistence on charity would eventually create major changes in the attitude of the state towards social care. Emperors would come to see philanthropy as part of their job. 
Orphanages, old age homes and hospitals would all be funded by the state to alleviate the worst burdens of medieval life. At the height of their wealth, both Alexandria and Constantinople developed maternity wards to try and bring some expertise to the fraught business of childbirth. Christian charity also gave women a respectable reason to be seen and heard. They were celebrated for giving their time and labour to noble causes. And rich women could fund or found churches and other institutions, allowing them the chance to create their own legacies. The early Christian movement benefited greatly from the generosity of women who donated their late husbands' estates to their new faith. As I said, though, there were some things Christianity couldn't change. Men remained the dominant sex, and women continued to be barred from the roles in life that would allow them true agency. Women could not be priests, soldiers, or administrators. Menstruation was still considered impure, and women were denied communion until 40 days after giving birth. And despite the vision of Christian marriage as something entered into with full consent, Roman families continued to marry off their daughters at a young age. In fact, Roman customs proved hard for the church to change. Despite the new ideal of lifelong, indissoluble marriages, the sources remain littered with the traditional picture of human relationships. Young people fell in love and had affairs. Married couples cheated on one another. Men slept with prostitutes and slaves. People wrote love poetry. And we know this from innumerable legal cases and law changes. People continue to get divorced and remarried, especially after the death of a spouse, despite the church's disapproval. Many of the rights that women had won in the late Republican period remained in place throughout Byzantine history. Women could inherit and bequeath property. Daughters were entitled to the same amount of the family estate as sons. And when a woman married, her dowry was offered stern protection by law. Though her husband could use these assets, it was illegal for him to sell them off. He was obliged to maintain the dowry at the same value as it had arrived. Much of this legislation was designed to protect children as well, to make sure they inherited something in the case of acrimonious divorce or sudden death. A man marrying a widow was meant to adopt and provide for her offspring from a previous union. And though women were not meant to testify in court against men, we have plenty of evidence that they did. As ever, though, a woman's ability to actually enforce these rights depended entirely on her circumstances. If she had money, an education, or a powerful family, her chances increased greatly. This was a theme we discussed at length in our earlier episodes. Women were at the mercy of fate in a way men were not. The statistics around childbirth are shocking. The odds were stacked against children making it to their fifth birthday, while the danger for mothers was very real and got worse with each subsequent baby they had. Still, for those who survived this game of Russian roulette, their prospects could improve dramatically. Women were almost always younger than their husbands, often much younger. This meant that when their husbands died, they would take control of the family wealth 
and finally be given the chance to make their own decisions. One study of 14th century Macedonia found that 20% of households were being run by widows. In practice, this means that Byzantine women played an immense role in Roman history. They took charge of the estates which fed the empire and organized the careers of their sons and the marriages of their daughters. Further down the social scale, little changed from Rome to Byzantium. The vast majority of people labored from dawn till dusk on their farms, while women in the cities continued to work as bakers, cooks and cleaners, as well as playing major roles in the garment and food industries. Female doctors, midwives and wet nurses were also needed to deal with female problems, at least in the places who could afford such luxuries. Finally, women could work as entertainers or prostitutes. Despite the pleas of Christian moralists, neither profession ever went out of business. In terms of dress, Christian culture encouraged a trend that already existed in the pagan world, which was for women to be largely covered up in public. Ideally, only their hands would be visible, as the rest of them would be wrapped up in long tunics, veil, headdress, and cloak. Leonora Neville, who we spoke to about Anna Komnini, writes very well on this subject. She says that the way a virtuous woman was expected to behave in public was with ostentatious restraint. Not only covered up from head to toe, but looking downwards, never meeting the gaze of strangers, avoiding any gestures or movements that might have the potential to arouse men. In elite circles, the almost impossible ideal was to keep your daughter out of sight of other people until her wedding day. These hints of the fears and anxieties around female sexuality brings us to one of the big downsides of Christianity, the condemnation of sexual behavior as sinful. There was once a pious monk named Zosimus. He left his monastery near the River Jordan every Lent to spend time alone in the desert. One year, he was determined to travel to its very centre, either to grow closer to God through this ascetic feat, or to encounter some desert father who could become his mentor. After twenty days of travel, Zosimus was performing his prayers when he saw a distant figure doing the same. He stared hard, trying to work out if this was just a mirage, or worse, a demonic phantom. But as he got closer, he could see it was a person, a naked person, whose skin was dark from a lifetime of exposure to the sun. Zosimus was excited and ran forward. Here was a master of ascetic discipline to learn from. But the figure ran away on seeing the monk. Zosimus chased and called out, asking for the figure to stop and speak with him. Eventually he became too tired to chase and broke into tears. The figure stopped too and turned, and then called out, 
Father Zosimus, forgive me in the name of the Lord. I cannot turn toward you and be seen by you face to face, for as you see, I am a woman, and I am naked, and I am ashamed to have my body uncovered. But if you are really willing to grant one favor to a sinful woman, throw me the garment that you are wearing, so that with it I may cover my feminine weakness and turn towards you and receive your blessing. Zosimus was shocked on two counts, that this master of ascetic discipline was a woman, and that she knew his name. He gave her his cloak and averted his eyes, but once she was covered, the two engaged in an amusing contest of modesty, each begging the other for forgiveness and asking for a blessing. She pointed out that he was a priest, and therefore more worthy than her, while he was sure that she had been on a righteous path far longer than he had. Plus, how did you know my name? She resumed her prayers momentarily, and as she did so, she began to levitate. Zosimus was dumbstruck. He then begged her to tell him the story of her life and how she'd attained such gifts from God. Full of shame, the woman told her story. She was born in Egypt and lived a disreputable life. Full of lust, she had experimented sexually from a young age. She had wasted her youth partying and slipping into a life of semi-prostitution. As she told the story, it was not just the corruption of herself she was ashamed of, but all the men she had led astray. One day, she saw some sailors rushing to their boats. She was told that they were sailing for Jerusalem. It was soon to be the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross. This piqued her curiosity, and she approached the men to buy passage on the ship. Having no money, she paid in a way that was agreeable to all, and now a source of much shame. Once in Jerusalem, she followed the crowd to the feast. Everyone rushed inside a church to see the life-giving cross. But this woman could not enter. An invisible force field guarded the door. She pushed against it, but it was unyielding. She tried sneaking in with a crowd, or running or kicking, but nothing she did could get her through the doorway. Exhausted and frustrated, she sat down in the courtyard and contemplated her life. It dawned on her that it was the filth of her actions that was barring her entrance. She began to cry and lament. Looking up amidst the tears, she caught sight of an icon of the All-Holy Mother of God staring back at her. She begged the Virgin to forgive her and allow her to enter the church, and suddenly she felt a change inside. She was able to enter the church and wept at the foot of the cross. Later she returned to the icon of the Virgin and begged for direction. She heard a voice telling her to cross the River Jordan. Once there, she would find a place of repose. When she arrived at the Jordan, she bathed in its waters and then took communion for the first time sincerely. She then crossed the river and for the next 47 years she wandered the desert. She was forced to tackle her lust and other temptations head-on, conquering them only with help from God. As she told the story, she quoted lines of scripture. Zosimus was amazed and asked when she'd last read them, but she replied that she never had. Yet the word of God, which is living and powerful, teaches man knowledge.
she asked only two things of Zosimus, to tell no one about her and to bring her the sacraments the following year during Lent, which he did. After tasting bread and wine for only the second time as a true Christian, she asked Zosimus to return the following year to do the same. But when he did, he couldn't find her. He searched everywhere, and eventually he discovered her dead at the very spot where they'd first met. Beside her, written on the ground, it said, Father Zosimus, bury the body of the humble Mary in this place. Return dust to dust, and pray always to the Lord for me. I died in the month of April, on that very night of the Passion of our Saviour, after I received the Holy Last Supper. When the monk read these words, he was overjoyed, for he had learned the name of the blessed woman. He realized that as soon as she had received the divine sacrament at the River Jordan, she came immediately to this place where she died. Zosimus buried her, returned to the monastery, and told her story to the monks there, who gave thanks to God and honored her memory. The two stories you've heard so far are hagiography, the lives of saints. These stories give us a rare glimpse of Byzantine popular culture and an even rarer chance to hear stories about the lives of women. Now, the two tales I've told you are clearly fictional. We will get closer to real people in our next episode. But they give us a sense of how women were thought of and celebrated in Christian Byzantium. As Christianity grew and rubbed up against the pagan world, Christians had to prove themselves. They had to demonstrate to others that their faith was real and that their God had power. The heroes of this movement were those willing to suffer, either to die as martyrs or to perform great ascetic feats of endurance. Stories of their achievements were written up in the monasteries and convents which began to dot the Eastern Empire. The positive side for women was that female saints were given prominence, their exploits celebrated, and their ability to match their male counterparts demonstrated. But you probably noticed a strong element of condemnation in both stories. Saint Mary, or Marinos, dresses up as a man so she can live in a monastery. But initially, her father responds to this idea by saying, It is through the members of your sex that the devil wages war on the servants of God. Similarly, Mary of Egypt must repent in the most hostile conditions imaginable in order to overcome her sin of enjoying sex. That women's sexuality was a wellspring of sin eventually became standard thinking in ecclesiastical circles. The men who led the monastic movement were students of Plato, Aristotle, 
and all the great Greco-Roman thinkers. From them they absorbed the idea that the body and soul were separate things, that the mind could be refined and improved despite the hindrance of bodily needs and desires. Jesus could not be matched, but he could be imitated. By removing all temptation from life, one could overcome most sin and be more pleasing to God. No sin was more contaminating, it seemed, than sex itself. Theologians like St. Augustine theorized that in the Garden of Eden, procreation was entirely rational and calm. But once Eve tasted the forbidden fruit, she seduced Adam into abandoning reason for passion. Thus, women were condemned for their sexual nature, which drew men away from the righteous path. Many ancient male thinkers had dismissed women as the lesser sex in their writing, and now the men who read their works reproduced the same stereotypes in their sermons and treatises. Tertullian called women the gate of the devil. Clement of Alexandria said, It is a shameful thing for every woman merely to think that she is a woman. Oregon said, Woman represents the flesh and the passions, while man represents reason and intellect. John Chrysostom said, The mind of woman is somewhat infantile. As I mentioned earlier, daily life probably didn't change that much. Men and women continued to find love, happiness and heartbreak, just as they always had. But the mood music of the ancient world, which had somewhat celebrated beauty and sensuality, was now changed. Sexuality was now viewed with deep ambivalence. From shame to sin, as historian Kyle Harper puts it. Even in those saints' lives, stories meant to praise female chastity and modesty, there is a hint of titillation. Were these stories popular because of the message of forgiveness and repentance? Or were some audience members delighted at the thought of a woman moving around a male monastery or hearing about all the men that Mary led astray? Christian Byzantium developed its own Madonna-whore complex. The two sides of womanhood could be summed up in the images of Eve and Mary, one a weak temptress, the other a virginal saint. You may think of Mary as being simply a virgin before she was married, but in Byzantium a tradition developed that Mary was perpetually virginal. In fact, the most popular stories extended this back even to her own birth, giving her an immaculate conception to prefigure that of her own son. These archetypes confined the space for female expression. Any move away from the shrouded figure staring at the floor while standing next to a male relative could now be viewed as sinful as well as shameful. Of course, this strict, pious view of the world was not one everyone held. The Byzantines were self-aware. One of the few women we know about from the so-called Dark Ages was a poet and hymnographer called Cassia. In a celebrated legend, she was one of the girls chosen as a potential bride for the Emperor Theophilus. At the bride's show, Theophilus was brought in to greet the various girls waiting nervously in a reception hall. Seeing Cassia first, beautiful and bright, he said, Ugh, 
what a flood of terrible things came through woman, referencing Eve. And Cassia, quick as a flash, responded, but also through woman, better things spring, i.e. Jesus. Theophilus, stung by the speed of her riposte, moved on to someone more pliable. I think the real shame for us is that I can't tell you much more about the lives of the millions of ordinary Roman women who made Byzantium what it was. In the earlier period, we had so much more to work with. We had the houses of Pompeii and triumphal arches put up by proud matriarchs. We had gravestones depicting or even writing out life stories. We could read plays full of female characters. Even the letter collections of men might be addressed to women or talk about the women in their lives. Much of this trove of evidence is absent from Byzantium. We have no Pompeii and very few gravestones. As the empire became poorer, the means to carve them diminished and with it the fashion for doing so. We have no plays which ceased to be popular even before Christianity took over the culture. Letter collections are few and far between, and of course archaeology has been hit by blows from multiple directions. Some early digs ignored the Byzantine period in search of more interesting finds from the classical period. And while Western Europeans generally incorporate the Roman past as part of their nation's history, the picture is different in Turkey. It's harder to generate interest and investment in sites with only a Byzantine past. It's such a shame because it excludes so many women whose contribution to Roman civilization was immeasurable. Until more evidence comes to light, we will have to look elsewhere for Byzantine stories covering the lives of women. In part two, we will take a trip to the convent, the institution which allowed women to live lives largely free of male interference. We will also hear more stories of the female saints who made a mark on the world. And then in part three, we will close our series by talking about the ultimate exception to the rule, the Empress. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.